WTF, you're on the series What the Future. What the Future aims to dive deep into hot topics that you, the youth, may be scratching your heads about. Basically, we ask tough questions so you don't have to. What the? What's up, guys? And thank you for joining us on another episode of WTF, What the Future. What the Future is a podcast series by the National Youth Council's Asia Ready Exposure Program in partnership with the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. Mm. Today, we're going to be unpacking something that is... Um, I, I don't think we understand much about it, but okay. thankfully we have some experts here. Um, I'll give you the topic. Global geopolitics. Define it. It is basically politics about where the countries are placed on the earth. Ah, actually, I think I saw that on Wikipedia. <laughs> so you actually did research? <laughs> <laughs> you did the same thing, right? You went on Wikipedia. I just guessed. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think that's, you know, um, pretty much mm. the broad like sense of what it is. But breaking it down into what's currently happening in the world right now in terms of global geopolitics and also, you know, covering a bit of the US-China rivalry mm -hmm. that we grew up in, right? Yeah. And it's still happening right now. Yep. So in this episode, we're going to speak to the experts of geopolitics, obviously not us, uh, but we're going to discuss some of the economic impacts on the region and what to expect moving forward. Okay, joining us in the studio here today, we've got Assistant Professor at NTU's Public Policy and Global Affairs, Dylan Lowe. Hello. Hello. Hi, we also have here Channel News Asia Executive Producer, Miss Pearl Force. Welcome. Good to be here. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> okay, so yes. our first question is obviously, how do you get into your field and what piqued your interest in, in, in your in your field of studies and your field of work? So, um, I studied uh, sociology and economics uh, at NUS. And um, how I got interested in China, it was actually very um, accidental. So, in the second year of my university, which is all the way back in 2001, <laughs> there was a travel log that was going to be shot in China and they were auditioning for people. And I was like, yeah, free travels to China. I want to do this, right? So, I signed up for it and then I spent two months in China doing all kinds of fun things, like wow. um, going to Shaolin Temple, like Gong Fu, climbing wow. Mount Erme, visiting different cities. And they were so open and welcoming um, to foreign ideas, to talking to foreigners, you know, to engaging. And I just fell in love with China. And so, of course, you don't go from um, being a fresh grad <laughs> to immediately becoming a documentary producer. So after I graduated two years later, I joined the CNA, worked in the local news desk. And then I worked for a couple of different production houses. And I went back to China in 2008 to make my first China-related documentary. And I haven't stopped since then. That's yeah. incredible. Well, it was amazing. Pearl, it sounds like you've had really quite the journey, yeah. um, you know, in your career. What about yeah. you, Dylan? How did you get into this field of work? Very difficult to top what you have just said. <laughs> it's not a competition. Like everything, everything will pale in comparison. Mine is really very um, unexciting. Uh, so when I, I... I did my undergraduate in sociology too at NTU. Uh, but from my first year in undergraduate, I knew I wanted to go into academia because I just loved research. It helped that I had a lot of inspiring profs as well. After my undergraduate, I went to do my master's um, at RSIS, um, as Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Um, there, I worked for uh, the then dean and former ambassador, Barry Desker. It was when um, it really opened my eyes uh, participating in some of these Track 1 or Track 1.2, which is what we call meetings below the official levels, where I had the chance to interact uh, see, speak with Chinese interlocutors. And that really made me very interested because even at that time, I could see how some of their 
practices were slightly different from the rest. And that really made me uh, very interested in, in developing a topic around, around China. Um, it helped that my boss back then, ambassador, former Ambassador Barry Desker, was very uh, welcoming, uh, encouraging. In fact, he said that, um, go on, go and develop your research topic. And um, I formulated my research topic around China's diplomats back then. This was before the whole wolf warrior diplomacy we see now. I was very interested in Chinese diplomacy um, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, just because it's like a black box, um, not been studied a lot, even within the academic literature. Not a lot of people know what they do, um, their effect on China's foreign policy, or they have this uh, very traditional view of China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs being fairly weak in the Chinese domestic system. But what I found actually was not the case. Um, so after RSIS, I, I got a scholarship to do my PhD at Cambridge, came back wow. to NTU in 2019, um, and here I am. You've tried a lot of different things. Yes. And, you know, you kind of chose something that you're very passionate about. Yeah. Right? And I'm very glad that both of you are speaking with such, you know, uh, vibrancy about it. We need it today. We do. Yes, we do. because we're going to be discussing, you know, in this first part, the Sino-US rivalry, right? This is something that has been described as the most important bilateral relationship of the 21st century. And the situation between both countries has always been complicated and complex. But in the last decade or so, it seems like it's become more tense. Why do you guys think it's become, you know, the tensions are running so high. It's very, very complex, as you pointed out, and there's a lot to unpack. And I could sit here and talk for 10 hours, but I wouldn't. Mm. <laughs> if I had to break it down into um, just one reason why the US is upset with China and one reason why China is upset with the US amongst the various factors, it would be this. Okay, so um, we all remember President Trump, right? Yeah, and... Uh, in 2016, when President Trump was running for presidency, he went to a lot of these um, Rust Belt states uh, or Middle America and ran a campaign that said, um, you know, make America great again. Uh, stop letting China steal our jobs. And remember what happened? He won. And we have to understand the historical background of that, which is that when China joined um, the WTO, China became the factory of the world. I I'm pretty sure the clothes I'm wearing Right now, something's made in China, yeah, sure. you know? But when everything is made in China, what happens to the American cities and American people who used to make those same things? The manufacturers. Yes, the, right, right. right. So for um, many, many years, uh, what we've seen is that the there's been a hollowing out of the American middle class when all these factories shift um, to China, and to be fair, to, to other places in the world, but, but many of them to China, you have um, the collapse uh, of certain cities. So I filmed in Dayton, Ohio. I also filmed in Detroit. And you go there and you see these big factories abandoned, the communities around there jobless. So people are angry and they're upset. And when you have Trump coming in 2016 and saying, make America great again, you know, stop China from uh, unfair trade practices and currency manipulation and all of that, um, it, it resounded with people. And then he started the trade war uh, after that. And by the way, those tariffs um, that were implemented as part of the trade war, a lot of them are still around today during uh, Biden's um, administration. But I want to include this very important thing, which is my personal view, uh, is that that is not the full picture. 
um, a lot of the job losses were also caused by automation, robots taking over jobs. They also outsourced to a lot of places like Southeast Asia, Mexico, India. Um, so it is not entirely fair at all to blame China for the hollowing out of the middle class and the loss of so many jobs in the US. Um, I think the US also needs to look at their own problems of inequality, how, um, you know, the very rich are, you know, uh, holding on to a lot of the wealth. But I think it, 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 many people do hold that view that um, China's rise has led to a certain degree of economic decline uh, in the States. So what about yeah. the flip side, right? If Ch we're China. looking, yes, if we're looking from China toward the US. Okay, yeah. all right. Have you guys been to Beijing? Yes. Yes. Have you guys visited this place called Yuan Ming Yuan? Mm, Yuan Ming Yuan. Yeah, it's, it's like oh. these gorgeous ruins. Okay. Okay. So Yuan Ming Yuan is um, called the Garden of Perfect uh, Brightness, and it is. It was um, the most beautiful thing that China had in the 1800s, okay? And what happened was that the Western forces came into China at the height of the Opium War, went to Yuan Mingyuan and burned it all down after they looted the place. And this idea of the century of shame that China suffered under the hands of, um, you know, Western forces, it's very much um, part of the psyche, everyday psyche of Chinese people. And so... After so many decades of working so hard, you know, they finally have their place in the sun. And then you have the US then coming and criticizing them that said, oh, you know, you did this due to currency manipulation, unfair trade practices and all of that. It, it, it really bites, um, you know, and, and they reference history a lot. Um, and Hong Kong was another major point. And Hong Kong is related to Yuan Mingyuan and the Opium War and the Century of Shame because they lost Hong Kong during the Century of Shame, right? And then we all remember the massive protests that were happening in Hong Kong. And we have Chinese leaders and the China public believing that the US played a role in that. I'm not saying that that is the correct point of view, but I'm saying that that is um, quite a, a popular belief. And it's also uh, um, something that's been shared by the Chinese leaders. So all those protests mixed with the history of the century of shame, mixed with, you know, um, the US targeting uh, China as, as a rivalry for the reasons that I, I described earlier, all contributes to quite a lot of anger in, in China. I wanted to ask you, Dylan, about this as well. You know, speaking of that, there's always this competition about US being a the global superpower. And we know that China is trying to challenge that as well. Mm. Do you think that has got anything to play on that whole, you know, oh, China doesn't want to be bullied anymore? It certainly has. So in international relations, we have this theory called the hegemonic transition theory, uh, which really in a nutshell says that um, a rising power will challenge the status quo power. Um, and that in return will result in some friction or some tension. And many are pointing to this point in time um, as that very moment. So to give a, another analogy, I have uh, two young kids at home. So I have my eldest daughter who's like the Superpower, so superpower. And then when my youngest came out, that's like the emerging power. Mm. Um, and then you'll very quickly see the superpower, sole superpower who had hitherto had all the attention uh, being very unhappy. And mm. this manifests in various ways, tantrums and, uh, and whatnot. So in that sense, uh, what we are seeing happening in um, US-China relations, uh, I think speaks to that as well. 
the US for the longest time has, has believed in and tried to socialize China into the international system to make them more like us. So they do this by various means, trying to introduce democracy, trade, because the idea is that to have flourishing trade, you must have liberal democracy because the rules underpinning global trade will slowly um, permeate your society, you become more democratic or more democratic light. Like, um, it has been very clear that that has not happened. China has proven that you can have authoritarian capitalism. You can have a very capitalist mode of production in the economic sphere with almost zero reforms in the political sphere. And I think during the Obama years, they have reached a point, inflection point, where they realize that, okay, China is not going to be a democracy. They are not going to be like us. We are not going to socialize them to be more in our... Um, making. Uh, we cannot mold them anymore. What next? Um, that's when the strategy to pivot to Asia, then subsequently renamed Rebalance to Asia, started to um, coalesce and, 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 and concretize. And that has been carried on until um, the present day. Let's take it to a bit more of a global scale, right? I mean, we're talking about US-China and how they view each other, but how does this rivalry then affect the rest of the world? I point out two things. One, the most obvious one is the deleterious economic effects. Um, when Trump initiated the so-called trade war, um, you see some of the negative effects being reflected in stock markets, in investor sentiments, um, in real terms for various economies as well. That has persisted into the Biden administration as well. Um, of course, what we are experiencing now on the global uh, level is not due only to US-China uh, tensions, but a whole host of other issues, structural issues, war in Ukraine, um, global inflation. Uh, we see some of the uh, runaway ill effects of hyper-globalization manifesting themselves in various ways as well. So we cannot blame entirely all the economic woes we are experiencing only on US-China. But um, what I have to add is that stable US-China relations in many ways is the precursor to global recovery. Essentially, no economy in the world will be left untouched. Um, when China or US sneezes, the rest of the world uh, will catch cold. So the economic aspect is very clear and it's the most in fact straightforward. But the second point I want to raise is um, because of the tension brought on by US-China uh, relations, there is a sense, I think a degradation of a sense of security. People just generally feel less secure, they feel less prosperous, they feel that the world is more hostile, less friendlier place. Now this is felt at both levels, I think at the political level, um, governments around the world, when they keep speaking in summits or when they make their speeches, keep referring to US-China tensions, it's going to have an effect. Can we try to simplify this? How will we bring this back to the youth? Yeah. Um, so I think the economic angle is quite clear. When the global economy is not doing well, Singapore being such an open economy, Singapore will get affected economically as well. So that would have a direct impact on job prospects, mm. uh, wage growth, the kinds of industries that you can participate, maybe even retrenchment. We see a little bit of that in the tech sector. Mm. Um, on the second point that I made on general sense of uh, insecurity, I think it affects mentally with what's happening, just this very negative atmosphere of what's um, taking place around different parts of the world. So all of these, I think, also adds to the anxiety that perhaps youth may face today. I think social media definitely helps to play a part in that, you know, because you see all this unfold on social mm -hmm. media and as mm -hmm. a youth, you're constantly like consuming social media that way. And I feel like that's what you mean by, you know, all that negative energy, they're going to pick it up from there as well, right? Yeah. And, and I will have to add that because social media really demands your attention, short attention span. Mm. So when they discuss geopolitics um, or, or US-China rivalry, this tends to be distilled into very short sound bites 
that is not historically anchored and that does not allow for a proper thorough analysis. So on Pearl's end, right, as a documentary producer, executive producer, what do you think the Sino-US rivalry has like an impact on a global scale? With regards to how it impacts the globe um, and the youth, right, I, I think we can, for me, there are two areas that stand out. Um, first is climate change. Like, we all care about climate change, right? We've seen so many disasters this year, non-stop floods, droughts. And US and China, they are the world's number one and number two, you know, um, carbon em emitters. They need to talk to each other. And um, I, I, I do agree with you on the security um, aspect of things. Everyone is just more worried um, about uh security, and it's not just because of Russia, Ukraine, right? Uh, in their AUKUS deal, you have China um, increasing their military spending, you have Japan increasing their military spending, India as well, and a long list of other countries. And we just came out of a pandemic. We, we're, 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 there were millions of people impoverished during uh, the pandemic. We have to deal with climate change. There are so many other things that we need to address and so much money is going to um, missiles, firearms, defense. and defense. I think a lot of times the youth are going to think, you know, is war actually going to break out? You That's know. how it felt for years, actually, that we've been on the brink. Everyone's saying World War Three, World War Three. Mm. I, I always feel like we're on the brink right there. And at any time, if something happens, we could tip over. Do you guys feel the same I way? I felt it was a bit scary a few months ago, but I think that when President Xi and President Biden met uh, in Bali recently, I think everyone heaved a sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah, tensions were taken down. I, I guess people, including youths, can... Um, maybe appreciate the fact that actually, despite what is happening, uh, honestly, the likelihood of war taking place here is very, very low. And at least statistically, historically, we are actually living in one of the most peaceful periods. I, I just became very calm. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to worry anymore. Yeah, you know, sense of calmness. No, but, but since we're talking about, you know, here, mm. we're calm here, mm. right? What does this actually have to do with ASEAN itself? Because, you know, are we ever going to be forced to choose a side? Like, is ASEAN going to say, you have to pick the US or you have to pick China? Will it ever boil down to that? For me, I see the choices being made already. Um, US and China is definitely in various guises. They're not telling ASEAN um, to say, choose us or them. But in different domains, say, whom you choose as your 5G network providers, we are already making the choice. Countries are already making the choice. Even if you do not think of your decision made being choosing US or China, it will be politicized or you will be seen through that lens just simply because this whole choose us or choose them um, discourse or, or narrative has been so um, strong in this region and, 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 and promoted so much by various people. It doesn't help. I guess it helps, but it doesn't help in the sense that ASEAN leaders themselves keep on harping on the fact that please don't ask us to choose. We don't want to choose side. Repeatedly, non-stop, that becomes a cliche. I do have to add that ASEAN is not Southeast Asia. Mm. Southeast Asia is not ASEAN as well. Southeast Asia is a geographical fact. ASEAN is a social, historical construct. Um, and sometimes we slip in our language between the two, but they are certainly not one and the same. Southeast Asian states, countries in Southeast Asia have their own calculus. They make their own decisions based on whatever national interests work for them, works for their youth. 
ASEAN collectively makes certain decisions, but at the same time, they are also uh, inhibited or have to consider what the rest thinks. The rest meaning the, the ten, all collectively 10 member, 10 member states think. So I think that the dynamic, or uh, there is some distinction between Southeast Asia um, and ASEAN. But to answer your question, countries do not want to choose, but in many ways, in choosing in the domains of military, security, economy, whom you do military exercises more, for example, um, already demonstrates that there are some choices that's being made. But what ASEAN and Southeast Asia does not want to openly do is to make decisions so overwhelmingly clear that they are on China's side. Here's also what I've seen in Southeast Asia. Like, um, there are a lot of countries here that um, maybe they have a security uh, partnership with the US, say Vietnam, for example. Um, Vietnam security partnership, uh, they do have a partnership with Japan, um, not one with the US directly, but then they are also part of the Belt and Road. And like in Cambodia, there's um, a lot of Chinese investments, but uh, they are also seeking out US investments and US companies. So I think that right now, a lot of... Uh, Southeast Asian nations are choosing to encourage projects from both US, China, as well as from other powers in order you know, to maintain that state of balance here. But do you think the youth should be concerned about like, you know, all these decisions that are being made, that they have, maybe they would feel like, you know, I don't have a say in this. You know, does that affect them in any way, do you think? They really have no say. <laughs> because let me just put it this way, ASEAN remains a very elite activity. Mm. For the youth of Singapore, for example, popular consciousness of ASEAN is very low. It's, it's not helped by the fact that when we think about geopolitics, we think about US-China. But very few youth would think about, oh, Indonesian politics matter, Malaysian politics matter, ASEAN politics matter. No, these are unfortunately um, not the sexy topics that they would consume. Not, not, not the stuff that generate headlines that they will read. Yes. So that level of awareness of ASEAN is very low, uh, which is unfortunate uh, because it, it does matter as well for, for ASEAN itself or Singapore itself, especially when uh, Singapore very clearly says that ASEAN is a cornerstone of Singapore's foreign policy, but not a lot of youth understand ASEAN. So I think more can be done to encourage mutual understanding of ASEAN countries and the entity itself. Yeah, I, I want to add another point, which is that what we are seeing right now as a result of the US-China uh, tensions is also a lot of supply chain um, restructuring. So there's actually a lot of factories, um, a lot of manufacturing facilities that are opening up all across uh, Southeast Asia as some companies choose um, you know, to not have an over-reliance on the China market. So they are hiring a lot of young people across Southeast Asia. So this is another way in which geopolitics really affects the young people of Southeast Asia in their employment opportunities as well. I, I like that point because I want to bring it back to what uh, Dylan said as well about, you know, Asian politics not being sexy, mm. right? So what can we do, right, to promote the influence of ASEAN? in our institutions or in Singapore? I think across ASEAN, um, there needs to be some sort of curriculum um, introduced at, in your social studies textbooks at the primary, secondary, and then perhaps tertiary um, level that at the very least deals a bit more with ASEAN uh, because these are our most immediate neighbours um, and they affect us in a multitude of ways um, as well. Perhaps some, some would even say that equally important or perhaps more important than US-China as well because they, they are our most direct immediate 
uh, neighbor. So institutionally, um, at the level of um, education, I think more can be done. Next is public awareness. This very podcast, I think, is helpful in that regard. You know, <laughs> in, a, in a way that is not a two-minute two minute, um, social media post, but also speaks at a level that can hopefully um, connect with um, the youth of Singapore as well. Because the youth will be, uh, it's cliche, but the youth will be the leaders of Singapore in the future. They well, are our but, future. Well, but it's very tough to get the youths off of TikTok mm. where one video is maximum like, what, three or five minutes? Now we've got 10 minutes. Oh, okay, 10 minutes. But as you said, Politics is not sexy, right? Yeah. But I, I mean, ASEAN is fantastic. I, I don't see why uh, young people are not more engaged with it. It's not as expensive as travelling to all the way to Europe. I certainly don't have to suffer a long flight. <laughs> and I, I really think that we should take advantage of that culture and vibrancy and beauty all around us. And maybe in, uh, aside from the curriculum, simply more backpacking around the region. Ooh, <laughs> would do so, that. Yeah, I love to do that. Absolutely. So, yeah. so, so you would say that would be your advice to the youth who want to discover more about ASEAN, about what it is about to travel and go and figure it out by yourself. For sure. Mm. Travelling there, talking to the people there. Maybe you might not be in immediately interested in mm. politics, you know, mm. but like getting a sense of, you know, their economic growth, um, you know, their, their culture. And, and then from there, that's a good segue to understanding the politics of the region as well. And it is very interesting once you get into it. Honestly, I have never been backpacking through Asia. I have. Oh, you have? Where so, have you gone? I started... This was my first trip. I'll never ever forget it. I, I've always wanted a backpack. My mom was like, you're not going alone. <laughs> I wanted to go from the south of Thailand, go up through Lao, mm -hmm. and then go into Hanoi and down all the way to Ho Chi Minh. And I found that to be exactly like you said, you know, super interesting because mm -hmm. you discover things that you normally wouldn't discover. Super, super fun. And I think this is a good opportunity for us to bring back to AEP. Yeah, absolutely. Because not everybody, you know, mm. is the backpacking sort. For example, me. <laughs> but the Asia Ready Exposure Program is something that allows the youth to have meaningful exposure to mm -hmm. Asian states. It gives you that chance. It's a short-term program, right? And it gives you cultural exposure. You get um, industry experience in um, places like China or India as well. And you get um, opportunities beyond Singapore. Yeah, I also heard that you can actually meet people who have, you know, been in the industry as well. You can speak to them. And for the youth, this is something that is definitely very eye-opening. Mm. You know, for me, growing up, I feel like if I had this opportunity, I would definitely jump at it because it's like, you know, opportunity to travel, opportunity to see ASEAN and then be right there and to experience it firsthand. It's very, very different. So we've talked about, you know, how that affects the youth here in Singapore, mm. right? What about the world? Mm. Globally, how does um, this, you know, geopolitical situation affect the global situation? Let me tell you about a group of young people that I interviewed um, for one of my shows. Um, when US-China tensions uh, became really bad, uh, I went to the States and spoke to China students who were studying there. The China students form uh, the greatest number of foreign students in the US before the pandemic. So they were in all the different universities and they were paying full fees, okay? And when um, the geopolitical situation got worse, uh, they had problems with visa renewals. Mm. Students that were doing research, one day they were, you know, welcomed, welcomed and another day they were seen as spies and saboteurs. Mm. So it's, it's I, I feel bad. Like, it's been quite difficult, um, you know, for the China youths that are choosing to study in the US. So they 
now a lot of them are looking at other places um, to pursue uh, their university studies or, or research programs, which, which is a pity. I, I feel that if the geopolitics uh, were not so bad and relations were better, that um, definitely the dynamism of the young people of China and the US put together can create some really amazing, you know, scientific breakthroughs and, and interesting products. Yeah. That's a very real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there there's situations where we've got Singaporeans working in China and couldn't leave for many years and couldn't see their family for many years. And, and that's because of the policies that being instituted, right? Um, I mean, we've spoken a lot, you know. Of course, there's more, but I don't think we have to study for that long. <laughs> but what's one thing in all your studies and all your research about US-China that is not well-known, right? But that you feel people should learn about? Okay, well... Um, let me tell you about one fun thing. Okay. We've been, you know, talking about a lot of serious things. So young people are all about, you know, exchange programs. We love applying for, for that, right? When we're in university. So did you know that when President Xi was young, he was actually on an exchange program to the US? And which, it was, which part of the US? He went to Iowa. What? Yeah. This was uh, when he was uh, already a civil servant. Uh, he went to Iowa to learn about uh, farming. And as part of uh, the trip, he uh, stayed in um, an American citizen's home. Her name is Sarah Lande, and I know her because I, I spoke to her and interviewed her about this incident. And uh, during the time, uh, he stayed in the bedroom of her teenage son, uh, who was away at college, and the room was full of Star Wars <laughs> memorabilia. Don't say that. He's gonna <laughs> And uh, yeah, interestingly, when he became uh, vice president, he went back to visit uh, that family in uh, Iowa. And that house uh, in Muscatine, Iowa, has since been turned into a China-US friendship house. And Sarah Lande, the lady who hosted him, wrote to him and he wrote back and it was carried in Chinese media. I will add that Xi Jinping's daughter studied at Harvard as well. (laughs) But then um, she had to come back when Xi Jinping became president. Um, for me, I will just share a factoid, a small factoid. Did you know that um, less than 40% of Americans have passport and less than 10% of Chinese have passports? Now, this tells us several things. One is the amount of people that know what's happening outside of US mm-hmm. and for China, definitely more so. So the amount of people in China that knows what's happening outside of China is actually not that great. Mm-hmm. Second, it means that there is potential, there's scope for more of these sorts of exchanges, um, people-to-people exchanges, and hopefully hopefully that can um, foster greater mutual understanding on the people-to-people level as well between US and China. Yeah, because domestically in the US, when you travel, you don't even need a passport, you just mm. need your you know, ID. Card. Mm. Easy-link card. <laughs> Nets cash card. <laughs> yeah, so, so absolutely. I think, you know more of the youth globally could afford to travel to learn about the world, learn about the cultural um, and historical historical significance, like Avery backpacking um, <laughs> through all of Asia. Okay, so before we end, right, let's, let's try and do something. If you guys have a piece of advice to the youth, right, so, you know, on geopolitics, what would that be? The easiest piece of advice you have for this day and age for the youth? Please do not rely on Facebook for news. <laughs> It's really, really important to um, not be in an echo chamber, like to read from a white source. And uh, if you don't have time to read from everyone, at least just read like 
the you know the local uh, news media and yeah don't don't just depend on your social circles for news and information mm. or watch pearl's documentary no, <laughs> oh thanks for the plug <laughs> <laughs> no absolutely i think an echo chamber can be very dangerous mm. you know moving forward yeah um, not unlike Paul, I would say spend a bit more time uh, reading things and always be questioning, questioning the source, questioning what's being said. Um, come to your own conclusions after questioning what you read. Basically, fact check. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's surprising that the media has actually come in a lot in our conversation mm. today. Mm -hmm. And looking at, you know, the intentions mm. of these media sources, I think is very important as well. You have any advice for the youth? Travel. Um, <laughs> see the world. See the world. Uh, Paul's right. You're not going to get any younger, you know. In our age, people don't really want to step out of their comfort zones and, and, and take that big leap of faith to say, I'm going to go and travel. I'm going to go and discover the culture myself. And I think when people do do that, they realize that, wow, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like you learn everything firsthand. Well, mine is not as exciting. I missed the I missed the exit on the highway and got stuck in Mexico without a passport and got detained in Tijuana. <laughs> yes, that was my experience. So bring your passport. Do not everywhere. forget your passport. <laughs> I travel insurance. Yeah, we have it for a reason. And I think you know that's global geopolitics in a, well, not really a nutshell, but but really a big thank you to Dylan thank as thank well you. as Pearl for coming in for sharing your firsthand experiences. You know, from your years of fuel and research, I think the youth will find it very, very interesting. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And to you guys, thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of What the Future, WTF. Uh, remember to visit NYC's Facebook as well as Instagram. Leave your comments. Let us know what you think. Yeah, but also learn more about the region and go and check out AEP's Asia Radio Exposure Program at utopia.sg. All right, till next time. Bye! Bye.